that's why the creed doesn't stop after the first phrase, I believe in God. It continues to describe what kind of God he is to us. The creed says he is the Father Almighty. So this morning we're going to talk about God as Father, and we're going to do that by jumping into the back half of one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told, uh, maybe the most famous story that he ever told. We usually call it by the name of one of the lesser characters in the story, one of the sons, um, but we should never forget that Jesus started this by saying there was a man who had two sons. This is a story about a father. So let me read uh, from Luke 15, verses 25 through 32. You can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read the end of Luke 15. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him home safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would meet us through this word that we've read together or heard together, that we're going to talk about together for a few minutes, that you would come and meet us through this word. And like we heard in that beautiful Old Testament lesson where you spoke through the prophet and said, you bent down and you fed your children. That's what we ask humbly. Bend down and feed your children. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, many, uh, many years ago, I, I cannot remember exactly how long ago this was, my wife Allison and I uh, sat down in the home of some really good friends, and uh, we sat at the dinner table that had a meal that they had prepared for us spread out on that dinner table. These, these were folks that I had known a really long time. These are really, really dear friends. And all of those disclaimers are necessary because uh, right before we started eating, in that quiet moment, just before we thank God for the food, I asked our hosts a question. I said, uh, I need to know, is, is there any yogurt on this table masquerading as sour cream? <laughs> you need to know. This family had a very troubled history of substituting yogurt in recipes for sour cream. I think we all know that's a crime, and I just needed to know. They may look 
vaguely the same, but they are not the same. And I needed to know. And weirdly, that incident from many years ago is what I thought about when I read that little line uh, from Calvin that I just mentioned a few minutes ago, that line about it not being enough to know that there's a God, that we need to know what kind of God he wants to be to us. And so Christian belief has at its center not a vision of God, but a very particular vision of God. I don't need to tell you this. I know that you know that there's lots of ideas of God, maybe little g God floating around out there. Um, In fact, even the idea of a Christian God gets trotted out of the shadows sometimes for all kinds of reason and ends up being talked about in all kinds of places and in uh, TV shows and greeting cards and in pop music and in the speeches of politicians. And Most of the time, if you'll let me put it like this, those gods are usually yogurt. They are not the real thing. Christian faith stubbornly has a very particular, very beautiful vision of God at its heart. And to be a Christian is to start there with the real thing. And this brings us to a pretty important place because when Jesus taught people like us how to talk to God, Uh, When Jesus taught people like you and me, how do we talk to God? How do we know him? How do we relate to him? He was very, very specific. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father. When you pray, say, Father. And this church is an incredible thing. In the Old Testament, God is very, very, very infrequently referred to as Father. In fact, no one, no individual person in the Old Testament ever calls God Father. You can look it up. All the greats, all the big names, all the heroes, none of them ever called God their Father. But that's pretty much all Jesus ever calls him. And that's what he told us to call him. It's how we know God. And I think it's really important that we get this right because while all of us have fathers, our experience as children is all over the place. Some of us here this morning never knew our fathers. And some of us here this morning probably wish we had never known our fathers. Some of us had fathers who were good. Some of us had fathers who were present and available. Others of us had fathers who were not good. Absent fathers. Maybe even fathers that hurt us. And so it's really important for us, in particular, if we have had a not good experience of father, it is really important for us to not abandon the notion of Father, to not abandon the longing that we have for Father, but instead to be ready to receive the gift of a good Father. Because that is one of the innumerable gifts that the Christian faith gives us, a good Father. Karl Barth wrote that true and proper fatherhood resides in God. 
So what kind of father do we have? What kind of father does he want to be to us? And that brings us to the story that Jesus told that we read the last part of. He told that story in part because some of the people around him had no idea what the father was really like. Back in the first verse of chapter 15, Luke, the gospel writer, sets it up like this. He says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. That is, they were all drawing near to Jesus. They wanted to be near him. And the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Right? For all kinds of reasons, uh, these people are upset that Jesus is hanging around with people that they wouldn't be caught dead with. He's receiving them. He's going into their homes. He's eating with them. He's treating them like family. And it is killing these religious people. Now, they don't ask Jesus any questions about it. They're not actually trying to engage with him around these things. But he engages with them anyway. In just about the most compelling way possible, he starts to tell stories about people who go out after lost things. First, about a woman who looks for a lost coin, and then about a shepherd who goes out to look for a lost sheep, and then finally, about a father who goes out looking for his two lost boys. I wish we had time to talk about both of these lost boys, but let me just say a little bit, a teeny bit, about the first one in the story, the younger one. It's, like I said, one of Jesus' most famous stories. You may be familiar with it already. The son went to ask his dad for his share of the property. Now, we're really culturally removed from the first century moment in which this story was told. I mean, in our world, if a kid asked his parents for something like this, we would think that kid was a little bit jerky. Uh, we would think that he was maybe entitled or that she was being presumptuous. But in the first century, for a son to ask his father for his share of the inheritance would be just about like saying, I wish you were dead. Because what he wants is what would be his when his father dies. It would have been deeply shameful to ask for this and deeply shameful to have it asked of you. But the son isn't just asking for money as if they had some big room in the house where all the money was stacked up. That's not how it worked. He was asking for his share of the property. And in order for the younger son to get that, the father is going to have to sell a portion of the property that the family had owned and convert it into cash. Because that's really what the son wants. He wants cash in hand. Because he doesn't just want the money, he wants to split. Now I have to tell you that everyone who was listening to Jesus at this point would have been outraged at the actions of the younger son because there was almost nothing this son could have done that would have been more demeaning to his father than this. And church, here's the, the first deep mystery and wonder and beauty of this story. It is not how troubling the son's actions are. It is the fact that the father absorbs these blows from his son. 
he sells off the property. And he gives the kid cash with an open hand. He absorbs the shame and the loss. This father takes it hard, hard on his chin from the sun, a painful slap in the mouth. And you have to ask, what kind of father is this? Because you can be sure everyone who was listening to Jesus tell this story was wondering that at that very moment, and I think we should too. What kind of father is this? So the younger son takes his money, he goes to a far country, he burns through it all. Things get really bad for him there, and he finally wakes up. He thinks he'll go back to his dad and beg his dad to take him on, not as a son, but as a slave. But the father shocks everyone. He welcomes this lost son home with a robe, with a ring, with a truckload of tenderness. Kill the fatted calf. He throws this big party. It's, a, it's basically a complete blowout with music and dancing. It is the greatest day of their lives. Maybe the greatest day in the history of that little town, right? And you've got to ask again, what kind of father is this? And this is where we get to the part that we read together. I always imagine that now at this part of the story, it's late at night. Because, you know, nobody dances at a dinner party so they had a bunch to eat and drink. And so the party is in full swing now. And the older son wanders up to the house. He's been outside working in the field. He gets near to the house. He hears the music. He hears that there's dancing going on. He wonders what's going on. But instead of going in, he stops outside. That's a pretty big deal, I think, because this is where he stays for the rest of the story. I mean, it's his home. <laughs> it's his home. Why wouldn't he go in just to check it out, just to see what's happening? What is it that keeps him outside? It's his home. He won't go in. Instead, he calls one of the servants out, asks him what the rumpus is about, and the servant spills the beans. Your brother has come home. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he received him home safe and sound. Your little brother is safe, man. And your dad threw a party. And then Jesus says the, the saddest line in this story. But he was angry. And he refused to go in. The older brother was so angry that he, he refused to go in and join in the, the joy of the celebration in church. I hope, I hope we can see this as clearly as Jesus is trying to tell it to us. This kid, this kid is as far away from the father. He is as far away from his home as his kid brother ever was. This kid is as far away. He, he is in a distant country of his own making, even though he is standing in his backyard. He is just as lost as his little brother ever was. 
And church, it is about the Father. It is all about the Father. He is outside. He is as lost as he can be because he has no idea what his dad is really like. Remember, that's why Jesus is telling this story. It's a story about a father. So what will this father do? What will this particular father in this story do? This shame-absorbing, hit-taking, quick to forgive, even when it makes him look like a fool father. (laughs) What will this father do with all of the music filling the air, with the glad dancing shaking the house, with this table set with this absurdly lavish feast? What will this particular father do whose long-lost son is sitting by his side finally? What will this father do? when he finds out that his oldest son is standing outside furious and he won't come in. Well, he puts down his wine and he wipes off his his beard and his mouth and his hands and he folds the napkin and he places it on the table. He leans over, he whispers something his long-lost son, brushes the crumbs off his lap, he stands up, he straightens his robes, and he starts walking. He walks past the musicians, he walks past the dancers, and he leaves his own party. That my son was lost and is found. That my son was dead and and alive again party. This unexpected resurrection party. He leaves his own party to go out and to find his other lost son. See, everything, church, everything in all of these stories that Jesus has been telling has been to lead us to this quiet, beautiful, eternal, holy moment. The father goes out to look for his lost son because that's the kind of father he really is. The shame-absorbing, hit-taking, slow to anger, quick to forgive, fast to throw a party father who goes out looking for lost children to bring them home. Church, this father, this father is the object of all of the deepest homesickness we have ever felt. This father is the true object of all of the unsettled human longing we have ever felt. He is our true goal. He is our home, and he is the way that we get home. Church, this is absolutely true. And it's what we affirm when we say with the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And Jesus puts it so powerfully. The father leaves the party. He goes out and entreats the son. He's begging with the son. He's pleading with the son, please come home. 
but the oldest son won't have any part of it. And then we find out exactly why it is that he is so angry. In this one instant, this waterfall of venom spills across his lips. He says, look, look, dad, these many years I've served you. I did everything you told me to do. I've served you over and over and over again. You didn't even give me a goat to have a party with my friends. But this son, this son who took everything good you ever gave him and wasted it all on prostitutes, he comes home and you kill the fatted calf? Why is this kid so angry with his father? Why is he so angry with his father? I mean, we've only been listening to this story for a couple of minutes and we already know this kid is way off base. There's nothing that we have learned about the father at this point in the story that would ever lead us even remotely close to believing he's that hard, that stingy, that unthinking. In fact, all that we know about the father tells us that he is beautifully, fully, wholly, and completely the opposite of that. Why can't he go home and join the party with his father? Why can't he go home and welcome his kid brother back with great joy shouts because he doesn't see his father as a father and he for sure doesn't see himself as a son and he doesn't see his house as a home he cannot believe or he will not believe what his father is really like. He's been living like a hired hand his whole life. And he's been treating his dad like a penny-pinching miser. Did all this stuff for you, dad. All this stuff for you, dad. It is a, a thoroughly unflattering picture, I know. It's, it's a tragedy, and it also happens to be the place where you and I most easily find ourselves in this story, and for the same reasons. Because we cannot believe, or we will not believe, what the Father is really like. And so here's the effect that that has on people like us. The, the effect is that we go through life, and this is, this is what we, we have this idea of a God out there somewhere. And we know that we should be in a relationship with him. We kind of know that we should be in a relationship with God, kind of deep inside us that we should. And we even really want to. We really want to know this God but we treat him like a penny-pinching, withholding miser. You know, we've got to earn everything with him. we got to run a little bit scared of him. And maybe if we bust our tails enough, he'll cut us a break. So, of course, we don't feel at home. We feel lost. We feel dislocated. Standing outside of a party that looks and sounds really, really good but paralyzed and unable to walk home. Remember, Jesus told this story 
uh, because there were religious people standing around outside the party with their arms crossed, angry at what was going on. Sullen, whiny, self-righteous, just like that kid. Laboring under a messed up picture of the Father. So the cure for them and the cure for us is the same. Listen and believe. Listen and believe. The father calls this kid by his true name. Son. He says, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. You are always with me. And all that is mine, it's yours. And so it was fitting to celebrate because your little brother was dead and he's alive again. He, he was lost and, and now he's found. Listen and believe. You are always with me. And all that I have, it's yours. I mean, he says that to that sullen, whiny, self-righteous kid, and he says it to people like you and me, too. Church, that's what our Father is really like. The shame-absorbing, hit-taking, slow-to-anger, fast-to-forgive, even if it makes him look like a fool, quick-to-throw-a-party father who goes out looking for people like you and me to bring us home. You don't have to run scared of him. You don't have to earn a thing with him. Not one thing. Because he said, you're always with me. All that I have is yours. Everything that's mine is yours. You have a home. You are always with me. And together, we have the run of this place. The Apostle Paul put it like this in the, in the New Testament lesson we heard. He said, when, when we rest in Jesus by repentance and faith, we become heirs with Jesus. We're his brothers and sisters, and we get to go home to the Father. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension for us secures for us the forgiveness of sins, and it takes us home. Those works for us take us home to the Father and to the freedom of a real home. To all who believed in him, to all who believed in him, the Apostle John says, he gave the right to be called the children of God. The ones who believed in him have the right to call him father because he calls us daughter and son. You're always with me. And all that's mine is yours. This is what we confess when we say, 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And you know, I love that Jesus leaves this story with an open end. You know, with the Father outside. Of course, outside. Out of the party with the Son, pleading for him to come back home. Because you, you read that and you think about these questions, you know, will he be found? Will he finally be the son that he is? Will he finally get the father he's always longed for? And that open end is for me and you too. <laughs> will you be found? Will I be found? Will you come home for the first time or for the thousandth time? from the far country of the backyard. <laughs> Will you come home? Will you hear? <laughs> Will you believe? Let me pray for us. Father, help us to hear and believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.